0: Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection, an element, restoring health through hydration. Oh God, as always, I knock my mic over and then bang against an ice axe.
1: (laughs) April 2020, Las Vegas.
0: Okay, I am now recording on GarageBand. Alex, where are you right now? So I am sitting in a closet underneath my staircase. I guess it's my gear closet. I've got three ice axes within 18 inches of my face and, uh, and a whole rack of cams behind me and a bunch of shoes hanging on the wall. Clearly, uh, we've
1: been able to bring the highest levels of production value to this operation.
0: You know everybody works from the space they have and and actually uh, the the closet is incredibly quiet and it's not disruptive to the rest of the house, so other people can can go on living without even knowing that i'm I'm doing my thing. so I mean I, I love the gear closet. Uh, should I just introduce myself as well? I'll, yeah. just, I'll just do yeah. a whole take so yeah. uh, so hi, I'm Alex Arnold, and just like everybody else in the country, I started a podcast during the pandemic. Hi. I'm Alex Arnold. This podcast was supposed to be leading up to the Summer Olympics and, uh, you know. Okay, let's try something a little different. Let's dive in. Why would the world want another climbing podcast? Why are we making this? I think that powerful stories are more important than ever. It's interesting because in some ways you can get quicker access to climbing news right now than ever before. I mean, you can YouTube the beta on any boulder problem you want to try at any time, typically from the boulder itself. You know, you have good enough service, you can just watch a video of somebody climbing it. But at the same way, that's kind of, I mean, that's kind of like eating candy. You know, it's like fluff that kind of comes and goes really quickly. But I think that really powerful climbing stories, like the legends that we share with our friends, we're like, I just can't believe that happened. That's such a crazy story. Those stories really carry you know the history of climbing in a way that youtube shorts don't there is no central repository for climbing knowledge there's no rules it's not televised it's not uh you know in mainstream news for the most part really we just have climbing culture you know the the stories that we tell each other the legends you know the, the basically the campfire sessions where you retail crazy climbing stories i mean that is climbing culture that's where where ethics come from in climbing
1: we've talked a lot about this idea that that climbing has changed yeah um there are climbing gyms springing up in basically every city or town that that has more than a hundred thousand people um even if it's hundreds or thousands of miles away from the mountains climbing is going to be included in the olympics for the first time if they ever happen it's getting bigger it's more organized there's more science to the training there's more money behind it and the sport is more accessible than it has ever been before. Yeah. And the quality of athletes participating is going through the roof and standards are being shattered. And while this has happened, you know, really in the last 10 years, it's kind of wild because the community, we can't all agree whether climbing is even a sport or some sort of fringe lifestyle, whether it's about athletics or adventure. And it is like some phenomenon we all helped create but we don't really understand what it is. You know, what I hear you saying is that those stories told over a campfire, um, they kind of serve as like a compass for our community.
0: Yeah. Some of the great stories of climbing are slowly being forgotten because they happened decades ago. There was no easy way to record them. Uh, nobody to to share them, basically. And some of the stories happening right now are happening very quietly and and sort of under the radar. And I think that both kinds of stories are worth sharing. I don't know. I mean, I think that's why I care about it. I'm just sort of excited to talk about where climbing's been and where it's going. So for chapter one of the season, we felt like we should talk about how inspiration gets passed between generations. And
1: realistically, there's probably no better person to talk to than the climber who you gathered inspiration from Alex, free soloist, Peter Croft. Today, we're gonna kick off our show by asking a strange question. What does AstroMan, one of the most famous rock climbs in the world, have to do with 1940s jazz? We bring you a story about how our sport evolves and progresses. The legendary Peter Croft helps make sense of it all.
0: I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And this is Climbing Gold.
1: Chapter One, More Bird Than Larry Bird.
2: My name is Peter Croft, and I live in Bishop, California, and I grew up in Canada. I never quite had the the arrogance to think that I was like moving anything forward.
1: How old were you when you started climbing?
2: I was like a teenager, so probably like 16 or 17. As soon as I started, it was like all I wanted to do. I would work crappy jobs for a number of winters i, I worked doing pipeline which basically is a nice word for ditch digging and ditch digging is, is miserable enough but doing it in the pouring rain up in canada no matter how good your rain gear is is you're soaked by mid-morning
0: and it seems like you know, uh, it seems like you should be a better off with climber if you used to be a professional <laughs> ditch digger <laughs>
2: no i just shocked. i wanted to get as far away from that as possible okay. i wanted to do something that was was way more fun
0: do you remember the first time you saw yosemite valley yeah the
2: newbies had to get blindfolded. you then, you know, you get to El Cap Meadow and you let out into the meadow and, and then the blindfolds come off and then you fall over backwards.
0: Wait, is that for <laughs> real? Were you actually yeah. blindfolded your first yeah. time into Yosemite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> was it Was it totally mind blowing?
2: Oh yeah, I fell over backwards. <laughs> Alex,
1: growing up, was Peter someone you looked up to was he a hero for you?
0: So th- there's an image that I know from childhood that I think was up in my, in my climbing gym or, or something. But it was the iconic photo of Peter Croft soling the rostrum in the upper dihedrals, stemmed out in his white painter pants. But it's just this striking image of Peter Croft X'd out as a, like a white dot on the top of this big wall. But, you know, stemming is sort of an insecure position to begin with, like seeing someone with his feet spread across two sides of a crack and him just, and just looking so poised and comfortable in a position that seems so uncomfortable, you know, really in complete control of his, his craft. You know, it's like, you see that image of Peter and you're like, that is incredible. Like that's somebody who's good at what he does and feels incredibly comfortable in a position that sh- shouldn't be comfortable from the age of 10 onward. I just knew deep inside that Peter Croft was the man. You know, like I didn't know why, but I just knew that he was the man.
1: At what point did it seem seem like you might be able to do those things?
0: You know, it wasn't wasn't like I was setting out to be as good as Peter Croft, because that was completely impossible. I mean, you know, he's the Peter Croft and he had done so many legendary climbs, there's no way I would ever even be close to that. But as I improved as a climber, I realized that a few of the things that he'd done were actually within reach. And then I was like, oh, I may as well do some of those things because I have been thinking about them since I was a child. You know, I have been looking up to certain climbs since I was a child. You know, once I was able, it's like I may as well just actually do them. So, what was Yosemite like back in the 80s? It was the center of the universe, not just the center of the world, it was the
2: center of the universe. And as far as getting immersed in the whole Yosemite culture or the Yosemite climbing vibe, I mean, it was overwhelming.
0: Tell us about Asterman.
2: It's kind of the gold standard of, of Yosemite crack climbing. It's, it's not like there isn't anything as good or possibly even better, but it, it is classic in nature. And then also the history of it really plays into it a whole bunch. It, or it, it certainly did for me. It started out as like an aid climbing route where they were just like hammering in pitons and just yarding themselves up. You know, Warren Harding's classic guy, you know, he, he did the first ascent of the nose and, and this awesome Yosemite hard man. To climbers, Harding is something of a legendary hero. He has ascended every mountain in Yosemite National Park.
0: So Warren Harding is a nearly mythical figure of early Yosemite climbing.
2: The ascent had been up solid granite.
0: He put up the nose on El Cap and the wall of early morning light, which became the Dawn Wall.
2: Not really a mountain at all, but a sheer clipped in Yosemite National Park.
0: (laughs) And he put up the west face leaning tower and the east face of Washington's column. A
2: welcoming party of girlfriends, friends and newsmen were already atop El
0: Capitan. When I think of Warren Harding, what I think of is driving a convertible, having women by his side, drinking a lot of wine. I mean, basically the antithesis of climbers who saw themselves as naturalists and explorers and adventurers. I mean he was just a wild man looking to have an adventure on a big wall.
2: Why in God's green earth do you guys climb mountains? Because we're insane. (laughs) Can't be
0: any other reason. He was willing to take a route straight up the most imposing part of a wall in a way that his contemporaries weren't. The east face of Washington's Column is maybe 1,200 feet high, but incredibly sheer, incredibly steep. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just kind of scary in a way that a lot of the other walls in Yosemite aren't.
2: Can you honestly say you enjoyed this climb, Warren? Oh, yeah. It's the biggest
0: thing I've ever done. Jim Kilpatrick, CBS News, Yosemite. So routes have a sort of life cycle to them, right? For the most part, climbing progresses from aid climbing, just anything goes, to free climbing, where you follow a slightly stricter set of rules, to free soling, where in some ways you're back to the purest form of climbing because you just walk up to the base of the route and climb it by yourself. Harding
1: establishes it in 1959.
2: 25 years later or something like that, the classic hard men of Yosemite were now John Backer and, and Ron Kauk and John Long. And those three teaming up and going to work on it and turning it into a free climb it ushered in a different idea about what wall
0: climbing could be. John Backer, Ron Calc, and John Long were among the wave of climbers who led the free climbing revolution, which basically was the, the transition from just getting up the wall by any means possible to getting up the wall strictly under your own power, like using your own hands and feet and, and actually free climbing walls.
2: I think from all corners of the globe, we are all watching this, you know, with tense excitement like this is the future.
0: Each brought a degree of athleticism to their climbing in a way that the previous generation hadn't. They cared about the manner in which they climbed walls and, you know, I mean, they were really performing as athletes up on the wall. Though they certainly wouldn't have called themselves that at the time, but they would have called themselves derelicts, you know, just out having an adventure and smoking a lot of weed.
2: And more than any other climb, I think that was for that generation, um, the climb that kind of changed everything as far as big routes went.
0: It was the longest and most difficult route in the world. People had climbed at that standard; single pitch is one pitch off the ground, but nobody had climbed that hard up high off the ground, and nobody had climbed that many difficult pitches in a row. And once they do successfully free climb it, they renamed it Man.
2: I was just like a student of history, and of climbing history, and I just sort of felt like this is for me.
1: After the break, Ron and the Johns go Hollywood. Peter Croft blows everyone's mind, and we find out what 1940s bebop has to do with Astroman. Stay tuned. So you're listening to a 1945 track called Coco by alto saxophonist Charlie Parker, a.k.a. Bird. This is quintessential bebop. This track comes from a recording session that a lot of people think is probably the greatest jazz recording session of all time. Uh, Parker's recruited young Miles Davis, uh, who's supplementing um, Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. Uh, The great Max Roach is playing drums. These are the titans of jazz, and they are blowing the doors off the place. They're connecting all these different notes to different chords and keys, and they can do this because six years earlier, Bird had had an idea. So why are we talking about jazz music? Well, I, I think that that's kind of what happened with Astro Man and John Backer, John Long, and Ron Kalk. Um, I don't think it's really all that different from what happened in in nineteen forties jazz? You know, these guys they had an idea, they had a skill set, and they put it together in a way that no one had done before. And I, I may get some heat for saying some of this, but up until recently, I'd say that climbing has functioned more like music or art versus something like football or basketball. Um, you know, we call it a sport, but I don't think it functions like that. If you are playing basketball or football, you break the rules, and a ref they blow the whistle. The rules, they get set by a league. And, you know, if you look back at say basketball at the NBA, it's a different game than it was in the nineteen eighties. Uh, there's more scoring, it's less physical, and part of that is that they they changed the rules. They changed how they called the game in order to make a, a better product in a lot of ways. And yes, there's been great athletes and they've changed it and um, you know, tactically there's been adjustments made, but But the players haven't changed the game. And like at its core, you know, they haven't moved the basketball hoop back, right? It's not like that. But that's what essentially happened on Astro Man. You know, it was much more like in creativity. Like in creativity, there's the brightest stars, they get good, and then they start breaking rules. And they alter the established tastes of an entire period. And I don't think you can do that in sport. Like, you don't get to change the distance to the hoop if you're a player. But I think that that's what Backer, Kauk, and Long did on Astroban. And that's what Charlie Parker did. They created something that their generation and even the next generation could build off of.
2: Like, okay, the first time that I did astronaut, I did it with a rope. And the night before, I didn't sleep a wink. And a lot of times people say, oh, I didn't really sleep the night before doing a big climb. I really meant it. I couldn't close my eyes all night long. I just lay there. All, and nights are really long when there's nothing to do. And you're just laying there looking at the ceiling of your tent. At that time, were you friends with Backer and Kauk? I would see them in the parking lot and I would make a huge detour because I was just, you know, their force field was just so strong, I would have to take a,
0: there's no way I could approach them. Each had sort of wild stories in their climbing. They each wound up doing mainstream commercials for various things, like John Backer uh, was the spokesperson for Gillette. I can't remember if it was John or or Ron that did a Bronco commercial.
2: Champion rock climber, Ron Count, knows the thrills and the difficulties of conquering rugged mountains. That's why he likes a Ford Bronco too. He knows that-
0: John Backer once publicly posted a challenge that he would pay anyone ten thousand dollars who could keep up with him for a day of soloing you know i mean imagine if i did that you know if i was like if anyone can keep up with me soloing in red rock for a day i'll pay him 10 grand like that just doesn't fly anymore some of my friends they would you know walk
2: up to ron or john when john baccar climbs he literally suspends his life from his fingertips it was just way too daunting, and it just didn't even occur to me to try to
0: talk to any of those guys. Their force field totally held. And in some ways, they sort of brought the first uh, widely recognized face to climbing.
2: This is what John lives for. This is where he belongs. No ropes, no pitons, just hands, shoes, and a bag of chalk for grip. To the other climbers, John just may be the best free climber that ever lived. For me, I'm, I'm glad I it, it affected me like that, because I, I always felt like, I I need to try way harder
0: In Europe, rock climbing is even bigger, and John is a superstar there. To him, it goes deeper than just wanting to be noticed. It's a way of life, and as far as he's concerned, a long and healthy one.
2: I'm going to climb for the rest of my life.
0: Are you sure about that? Yeah.
2: You don't think there's a a limited (laughs) I'm not getting tired of it. No, I like it. It's It's a healthy activity. In
1: 2009, John died soloing at a local crag near his home in Mammoth Lakes, California. He was
2: 52. Basically the idea of having climbing gods that that inspire you to do better, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I said, I I wish I could have talked to them, um, but I was just too much of a geek and and, uh, I I took the inspiration instead. Certainly in Yosemite, I just felt like I was just doing my own thing. I mean, a lot of times I would just show up by myself and I would just go do a ton of soloing and I wasn't really interacting with people. I I guess a lot of what I was doing was just like linking up big groups and nobody else was doing that kind of thing. By
1: 1985, Peter has this reputation for being able to free solo a week's worth of climbing before lunch. And that year, Peter goes and does something that turns everybody's head, including backers.
0: I kind of had to wind myself up way more for when I first sold the Rostrum. The Rostrum is basically an easier version of Astroman. It's similar steepness, uh, similar physicality, but just slightly smaller, slightly easier, and slightly more comfortable, slightly easier style of climbing. And I remember I was just like, you know, walking over towards
2: Yosemite village and it was nighttime and I was just like by myself and I was just listening to some music and, and thinking just like, I don't know, I mean, just like, what am I thinking? I hadn't talked to anybody else about what I was thinking of doing. And, and I remember just thinking, you know, this would be, would be the coolest thing that I can imagine doing in my whole life at that time. And all of a sudden, it just like, I just got super calm and just like, oh, this is like, there is no better thing, you know, and and clearly, you know, there's all kinds of better things for different people. But for me, that was just like, this is the most awesome thing I can imagine doing this. There's no place I'd rather be.
1: The following year, Backer comes to Croft with an idea.
2: John Backer approached me and he wanted to do, try to do the the nose and half dome in a day. You know, free climbing and aid climbing, just kind of whatever, just speed climbing. And uh, I was just totally overwhelmed. I could hardly even talk to him because he was such a big hero. You know, we went on to do that and it was just incredibly fun. It's not like I felt like it made me on level with John. It was something that I dreamed about for years. In in other words, doing that link up of of the nose and and half dome, I guess I was so amped, I didn't feel hard. And I just go, I've been kind of, I've been holding myself back. Like I said, Astroman wasn't on the horizon. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, why
0: not? We'll be back after the break.
1: Alex, for you, did it feel like all roads went through Astroman?
0: To me, it always seemed obvious that I would have to repeat a lot of the free solos that the Stone Masters had done in the past. And so that included things like the Rostrum and Astro Man. Yeah, any climber could just imagine a big challenge and just go out and and, and try to do it. But I think that most climbers, as they're coming up, they want to measure themselves against the standards of the previous generation. And so you you just sort of naturally focus on on challenges that you know about.
1: Obviously, Peter was deeply influential,
0: but was he ever like a really a mentor to you? He was never really a mentor in any way mostly because i was much too shy to ever approach him or or to ask him anything about it uh you know now i'm lucky enough to consider him a friend and you know i mean it is interesting that that peter felt the same way about john backer uh that you know he was intimidated by by his legend but i think that's kind of the nature of putting your heroes on a pedestal it's like you know we're all just human you know, anybody that you're looking up to as, as an inspiration is, is still just a human, just like you. And in some ways, like, I don't want him to be uh, a human. You know, it's like, I want him to be that legend on a pedestal. Because, like, it's, it's just nice having, having something out in the distance kind of guiding the way. I think I had just turned 22 when I freaky saw that Man in the roster.
1: It's kind of crazy to think that you are the only two people living on this planet. Who have had uh, the experience of soloing Astroman? Um, like, like more people have stood on the moon than that. Um, will you share with us some of your your memories of that experience?
2: The rostrum felt like I was really stepping out. Astroman didn't really feel
0: like that. They were doing controlled burns on the valley floor, and so there was this thick layer of smoke across the entire valley, and so it felt apocalyptic. You scramble up this uh,
2: talus slope for 20 minutes or something like that.
0: I got above the smoke and it was quite beautiful and it was all, it was all very surreal.
2: And you get to base and, and then there's like, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet of just scrappy easy climbing and then it just turns into maybe 1200 feet of just these splitter cracks.
0: So the first challenge on AstroMan is the boulder problem and it's a maybe 15 foot fierce, thin crack that you just have to really pull
2: that's when the kind of calm settled in at, at, at that point
0: so right above the boulder problem is the enduro corner which is about 150 feet of perfect hand crack in a corner
2: and i'm looking across at half Dome, and there's no one in the whole face i'm just like there by myself i'm just like got a pair of red adidas running shorts no shirt and i'm just like hanging out there and just like there's no place i would rather be there's no thing i would rather do
0: the Harding slot is a completely outrageous feature on Astroman. I mean, you're basically squirming your way upward into a giant mouth in the mountain. And then once you're inside it, you can barely breathe all the way pitch above the Harding slot. There's a ledge. I remember just getting to that point And I'm like, I'm climbing way too fast. I'm not enjoying this enough. We're, I bet Warren Harding probably bivied there when, uh, when he first climbed the route.
2: And I took off my shoes and, put them on the ledge beside me, and there, those swifts that, you know, I, I know Alex knows it, it all about the sounds of those swifts just darting around.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty unnerving to put your hand into a crack and then have a bird basically run down your arm and fly out, you know, to be up in these steep corners and to have have creatures and whizzing around you and, and whizzing in space behind you, it's, it's, it's sort of a surreal atmosphere.
2: But Sitting on that ledge, drinking it all in was just like, this is like the best place in the world. This is the best thing in the world. And I am just like, this is what I've dreamed of my whole life being in a situation like this. And I remember just think I was hanging out on top of Washington Column and I was like, I don't want to go down. I just want to hang out here. I just, I wish I never had to go down to the valley again.
1: Looking back on those memories, does it, does it make you happy to think about it now?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, f- for, you know, It's just like so often we do the things we have to or we do our everyday job or we do things that we think we're supposed to, but to do something that you think is the best thing in the world, the coolest thing you can think of in the whole universe, and to throw everything of yourself into it, to feel like at at least once in your life, you went for it. Not many people get the opportunity to do that or or, or even maybe think it's even important, but for me... Certainly was super important. It is such a big draw of why that kind of stuff is so cool. And, and it doesn't suit most people. Most people don't really get it. They're kind of like, what, what is the point? But that higher focus that is required by doing those sorts of things, it, it imprints it
0: in your memory in a way that you, you can't chuck it. It's there for good. I mean, people ask me all the time, you know, what's next? talking about, uh, free soloing El Cap and people ask me that question, expecting that there's some other El Cap out there, you know, that I have some mm-hmm. other big dream lined up. And, you know, I give various answers depending on how, how patient I am, and how much I feel about, chatting <laughs> about it. But, awesome. but, uh, but one of the things that I sometimes talk about is just the fact that, that I feel like there's a, a limit to the vision of any generation. And, you know, so, you know, I grew up in a time where you had sold Astro, man, and the craziest thing that I could possibly imagine would be solo angle cap. And I personally just can't really see past that that much. You know, it's sort of in the way that each generation of climbers has sort of taken things a step further. Uh, you know, how do, how do you think about that? Certainly for myself, because of the way that AstroMan was, was sort of this
2: seminal moment, it, it was like the root of a generation that it changed things all over the world, the way that people looked at big walls. Um, for me, it was hard in a way it was hard to get past that. Once I'd done that, it was like, yeah, I can always bump up the grade a little bit, but it wasn't this massive historical thing in my own head of the the coolest thing to do. It'd be like, oh, bumping it up a little bit grade wise. And it seemed like such a petty thing to do. I guess I just didn't have the imagination to think in terms of something as big as not just a bumping up a little bit, but just kind of like oh, half dome, and then after half dome, El Cap. Well, the thing is, is, is now there is no bigger uh, psychological thing than El Cap. Um, you know, yeah, you could do harder routes in El Cap, but that's not going to be nearly the knockout punch as what you did on Freerider. Yeah, there's always harder things to do, but as far as like that thing that just stands out in the face of anybody, even people who don't even climb. I don't see what else there is, you know, as long as you're glued to this planet.
1: Do you agree with Peter, Alex? Do you, do you buy that?
0: I definitely feel... A little sad not having an obvious vision in front of me. I mean, I think that my entire climbing life has been had. I've, I've had certain dreams in front of me, certain big goals in front of me, and I think to free solo all cap, I'm suddenly like, what's what's the dream? What's the vision? I mean, there are plenty of places I want to go climbing, there are people I want to climb with, there are routes I want to climb, but it's like it's a little bit different because it's not the deep inspiration of something that seems impossible in front of you. I, don't know. I mean, in, in a way, climbing hasn't even gone through enough generations yet to really know exactly how the sport's going to progress, but it seems like there are clear demarcations between the gen- generations and the different visions of each generation. Peter couldn't really see past Asterman or the Rostrum. I can't really see past El Cap. You know, I think that, that each generation has a hard time seeing into the next. You know, it is, it is kind of depressing.
1: Well, I, I hope it doesn't depress you too much. Because you would be you you wouldn't really be human if you were always functioning like that, right?
0: Yeah, but it but it is nice to have something that gets you out of bed in the morning. You know, like it's nice to have a reason to feel like you should be pushing yourself or a reason, something to improve for. And you know, I mean I think that's the the double edged sword of actually accomplishing some of your big projects, you know, like realizing your dream is just something like, oh, now I need a new dream. <laughs> Like, this. that sucks. Though I don't want to totally sell myself short because, you know, maybe I'll, I'll end up imagining something more inspiring.
1: Alex, I mean, you're a part of the process, though, right? I mean, climbing is no different than, say, jazz music, like we talked about earlier, or hip-hop, or or modern art. We build off of what people create before us. So when you put yourself in that context, there must be some level of satisfaction that you that you feel to have been a part of that.
0: I mean, I hope that someone out there is. Well, I was going to say listening to this, but hopefully they're not listening to this. Hopefully someone out there is just training right now, thinking about their big dream, thinking about you know what's next in climbing. I mean, I think that for for climbers growing up right now, they're growing up in a world in which free soloing LCAP cap is is normal free soloing astroman is old school and they're thinking about what's next which you know i mean isn't really for me to say because i can't really imagine it but but someone out there is imagining that and and they will execute on that vision with the, you know within their lifetime and i mean I, I you know i'm looking forward to seeing what that is and so you just never really know where the progress in climbing will come from and where young climbers will choose to take it. I think that is what makes climbing so interesting right now is that it's a period of incredible growth and it's, there's so much more talent. There's so much more possibility in climbing, but it's really hard to predict where that's all going to go and how it's going to manifest for the sport. So the last couple of weeks I've been sport climbing with a 16 year old who's climbed 14 D climbs, you know, feed 13 outside. Like people like no human bouldered that hard when I was 16 and and for him that's routine he's not even the best climber in the country or anything you know he's just like a very motivated 16 year old and climbing with him i'm just realizing that that he will have a completely different vision of climbing than i've ever had you know just because he's capable of so much more i mean he's just so fucking strong i'm like oh man <laughs> it's crazy
1: do you think that's kind of not to get too meta here but do you think that's what the point of these stories we're going to tell on the show are that they're that these are little things for people to tie into to find inspiration from.
0: Yeah. Well, no, I do think that I do think that it's important to share some of the stories of climbing in a way that help new climbers know what's possible, what's been done and therefore frame what they will do in the future. I mean, you know, it sounds silly, but, uh, you know, I do think it's important for, for young climbers coming into the sport and, and having this incredible opportunity, incredible potential, incredible skill that, that somebody from my generation didn't necessarily have. I think it's useful for them to know what's been done and where climbing's been so that they can know where to take it.
1: production duct Tapes and beer. Alex Honnold is our host. This episode was written and edited by me, Fitz Cahal. Music today by Brendan O'Connell, Amy Stolzenbach, and Cordelia Zars, who collaborated with me on original pieces and also edited and mixed this episode. Art direction by Anya Miller. It was recorded at, uh, who are we kidding? It was recorded at in closets, vans, basements, and backyards during the pandemic. Audio engineering by Zoom and the voice memo app. Our executive producers from Duck Tape and Beer are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cajal. And from RxR Sports, Jonathan Redzik and Ben Endy. You can follow us on Instagram at Duck Tape and Beer and Alex Honnold. In terms of getting the podcast, find it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please spread the word or write a review on Apple or iTunes. Please help us out. Thanks for listening.